Good morning, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And, uh, you know, we're... Uh, Guess what? Today we're, today we're staying closer to home than, than we often do. Why is that? I, I don't know. Just the way, the, way the, the way the show came together. Oh, you mean because it's American? Because it's all American, yeah. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I was thinking, you know, it's pretty soon after Flag Day. Yes. So Flag Day is June 14th. Oh, okay. So, yeah. I never knew that. You didn't know that. No, I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) They put the wrong flag up. I don't know why why they do that. Did you notice, by the way, that they did? I often wonder what I'm supposed to do on the 4th of July. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. <laughs> that is an issue. But, but anyway, what do, what do I, I wanted to just tell you before I forget, they did oh this dear, big survey. Uh, uh, they polled the British about what they thought were the, the most British of foods. And? And the best and, and what everybody liked the most. Yorkshire pudding came out on top uh-huh. along with Sunday roast. Yeah, yeah. Yes. That would be it. The roast beef of all England. But they never looked to any, it was almost all middle UK. I mean, they didn't do anything with uh, Scottish foods or Irish mm-hmm. foods or. Well, they, they do, they do roast beef too. Yeah, alright, well. Sometimes, Anyhow, sometimes we're, we, we are skipping around here. We are. We are doing an all American uh, show, more or less. And we're going to start with one of our favorite cheese companies. Um, Cabot Cheese Creamery. Cabot Creamery, I think, is and, and, preferred. And a, yeah, and a, and a member of the Cabot Creamery Co-op who's been in the same family for seven generations. Yes. And Alison Akins is now the spokesperson for the whole organization. And she's she a worked, good one, too. She works at one of those family farms. She does a great job explaining she's a great job, yeah. all, all about Cabot Cheese. So you'll enjoy, I'm sure. Allison, I spelt your name, unfortunately, with two L's at one point. I want to make a point that Allison is one L, and Atkins, Atkins has no T, right? <laughs> uh, it's, it's A-L-L-I-S-O-N, so it is two L's. Oh, okay, then I'm wrong. Okay. Yep, and it's pronounced Akins, so A-K-I-N-S. And we, okay. we like to say that we are not a part of the Atkins diet. The Atkins diet <laughs> is seafood, you eat it. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we have, we must have had a, a an Aiken family in Pittsburgh because we have, uh, Aiken Avenue is the major uh, street in the city. But, but, but they've got an E sneaking in that, so. Well, they do? Yeah, Aiken, A-I-K-E-N. Oh, okay, there's no, right. there's no, there's no e in your Aiken, right? No. Yeah, I'm Aikens with an S, so A K I N S. Okay. Anyhow, Allison, we're talking to you because of this incredible Cabot Cheese Creamery, the company, your long history, how it's structured. Just start telling us about it. Uh, like Cabot Creamery. Is the preferred name or, or Cabot cheese? Uh, Cabot Creamery. Okay. Um, just simply because we make more products than cheese. So we also have butter, yogurt. Um, we do Greek yogurt. Um, what else? Sour cream, cottage cheese. Wow. Pretty much 
any dairy product that you can imagine we make. So um, Cabot Creamery is usually the name that we go by. Okay. And now uh, you are a, a one farm, and you said you're a seventh generation. Yeah. So I am a seventh generation dairy farmer from Lisbon, New York. I work alongside my grandparents, my parents, my brother, and my sister-in-law. And we're one of the 800 farm families that own Cabot Creamery Cooperative. So that means that all the milk from our dairy farm is made into Cabot products. So we have cheese, butter, yogurt, cottage cheese, sour cream, you name it, we have it. The cottage cheese, you know, whatever happened to cottage cheese? Is it alive and well? I I grew up on cottage cheese, and I haven't had any in probably 25 years. Oh, you need to you need to try it again. Okay. I mean, it's I I love it. I mix it with um, like pineapple, and to kind of give it that that like tangy taste to it. I I like it because I grew up on it. Uh-huh. Well, um, I love it too. There's, there's some people the out pineapple. there that hate on it. So hopefully hopefully it's coming back around. You do you make buttermilk. That's the other thing I never get enough of. <laughs> I don't know if we actually make buttermilk. We haven't. We we are into like dairy creamers, so we don't do any fluid milk. Um, we only do the the cultured dairy products. And now, when did this all start? The uh, cooperative. So the the cooperative is actually celebrating our centennial this year. Oh wow! So we were founded a uh, hundred years ago, right in Vermont, and we've since spanned out to New York and New England. But they did start right in Cabot, Vermont, and the co-op was formed in 1919. Wow. But your your family goes back beyond that. Yeah, so my family has been farming for almost 200 years, and we joined the Cabot Cooperative back in uh, 2006. Uh So we've been with Cabot for about 15 years, but there are some farms in the Cabot Cooperative that were um, our descendants of the original founder, founder's families. So I always think that that's really cool that we still have some of the founder's families a part of our cooperative. Oh, that's amazing. Absolutely amazing. You know, where did the original families come from? Mainly Vermont. Uh, so no, they, but they came from they came from somewhere else before that. I mean, they came from Germany or they came from Somerset, where they make cheddar. <laughs> Oh, goodness. I, I don't know that answer. Oh, my goodness. You, be, um, you better sign up for Ancestry. Ancestry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was say, like, I, I don't know that answer. Um, but, I mean, my family specifically, we came from Ireland. Okay. Right. okay. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I have um, red hair, so that's how I know I'm from Ireland. Oh, I'm envious. I'm, I'm not so, I always wanted to be a redhead. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you're yeah. celebrating your centennial, which explains this. But I was reading about this wonderful award-winning cheese, Cabot Centennial Cheddar. Yeah, it is delicious. It is delicious. I told yeah, you so before that. Was, that yeah, so that the, is a five-year um, cheddar cheese. So it's been aged for five years, and it was set aside by our cheese graters, and because they knew it was going to be a delicious cheese. Really. Yeah, so it was set aside specifically for the centennial celebration. And it looks like a brick, right? It's yes. black and it looks like a brick. Yeah, it's uh, a waxed 
covered brick. Um, so in that we only sell it in the one pounds in limited quantities. So people do, you know, have an interest in buying it. They can buy it online. Uh, but other than that, it's, it's mainly sold in our Northeast stores to really celebrate our Cabot farmers. Now, do you, do you only make cheddar cheese? Yes, we do have uh, shredded cheese, so we do have a mozzarella shred, okay, right. uh, but we only make mainly cheddars. That is certainly our specialty. But you have a variety have- of cheddars. You have uh, cheddars um, that are sharp or uh, very seriously sharp or white or, you know, whatever. So you have a variety of cheddars. And do you, yes. have, do you have a cloth wrapped one, too? Yeah, we have a Cabot cloth bound. That's uh, not, so that is, that's raves. Yep, that, and people rave about that cheese. <laughs> yeah, it is certainly. I mean, everywhere you go, people will recognize the Cabot brand. And like you said, we do have a variety of cheeses. We have all the way from mild to our private stock sharp cheddar. Um, we have wax cheddars as well as the plastic wraps that you'll find in the. The grocery stores. Um, we have flavored cheeses, so we have a. Oh, jalapeno is new, huh? What was that? You have a jalapeno, which shows you're expanding your offerings there, huh? Yeah, we have a, a pepper jack and a hot habanero um, for our pepper cheeses, and then we have our horseradish, which I love cooking with. Oh, uh, I never horse- thought that. Now, yeah, I think I think we sent that one to to you guys to try. I better look at it. There, there are a couple of a couple of very interesting small small bricks, rather than the big yeah, br- rather than the, the big five pound brick. Yeah, yeah, we um, a lot of the I would say our best seller is by far the seriously sharp, um, but a close second would probably be our pepper jack or our um, Vermont sharp. So it's a little bit kind of middle of the road, sharp cheddar, and then our flavored cheeses too. Now, can you explain what cheddaring is? I mean, I I understand in in England it's a place. Mm-hmm. It's a place called cheddar. There's a place called Cheddar Gorge, and they, and they make obviously good cheddar. But the the reason it's called cheddar is for a different reason, and that's got something to do with how it's made. Can you explain that? Yeah, so uh, obviously we start with the milk, and that is pasteurized and... Um, cow's cordon- milk. Cow's milk. Yes, cow's milk. Yes. Yep, we only have dairy cows uh, on our farm, so we don't have any goat milk or anything like that. So it's all dairy cows, and it's a variety. Our, our farmers have a variety of types of cows, so we have some Jersey farms, Holstein, Ashire, um, you name it, our, our farmers probably have that type of cow. Yeah. Our, so, our Uncle Frank had Guernseys. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are some beautiful cows. Yeah. I have a, I have a, being a redhead, I have a soft spot for any red-haired cow. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you have, you have black and white ones, right? Yeah, on, on my farm, uh, we have mainly black and white Holsteins. Holsteins. I like to say that we have a nice sprinkling of Red Holsteins and uh, some brown Swiss and jerseys mixed in too. You have to get some belted Galloways. Oh, yeah, they're so cute. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're the funniest looking things. They look like they've been painted. Yes. Have you seen yes. those, Allison? 
Um, I, I used to have one um, oh, back you? when my brother and I started a beef business back when we were 12 and 13. I did have a belted Galloway, and she was actually, I mean, she was, so she was half belted, half um, black Angus. Oh, wow. So she, only, so she only had the belt on one side. So <laughs> one side she was all black, and the other side she had a white strip. Oh, right I, that's <laughs> adorable. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I, never, I never heard of such a thing. I bet you loved her, huh? Oh my gosh, she was my favorite cow ever. <laughs> okay. so, so anyway, back back to the cheddaring. Yeah, what about cheddaring? Tell, tell yeah, us. so so we have um, all dairy cow milk, and it's pasteurized, and then um, we add in a rennet, which is an enzyme that basically starts the process of the um, curding. So mm-hmm. uh, after it is basically um, come to uh like I'm losing my words like come to like heat and form and we'll be into two products uh so it'll be curds and whey yeah whey is the liquid and then the curds are what we actually make the cheese out of so we drain the whey and that's a byproduct of the cheese making process and then they pack the curds into um 670-pound blocks. Wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so there are these big, huge squares, and after that, they actually put that into a storage facility to age. So it's aged for at least 30 days, and the longer that you age it, the sharper the cheddar oh. So that's why if you have... Um, like a seriously sharp that is aged for longer than our sharp cheddar. So but our centennial cheese is aged for five years. So that's the longest aging process that we've made in a mass quantity. So that's why you can tell that the five-year cheddar is a little bit more crumbly and it has that um, like aftertaste to a sharp cheddar. And you'll have the more milder cheddars like a Colby Jack that's really creamy and oh, smooth yeah. and you don't have that, that aftertaste in your mouth of a sharp cheddar. So that's kind of how you can tell how long it's been aged as well as how sharp it's going to be. And then we have a cheese grater team. So they have the coolest job ever. Yeah, Very they have jealous. to eat it all. <laughs> Taste it all. Yeah, so they, um, they go in and the... Seven, the 670-pound blocks, they mm. actually have a tool that they'll basically core out a piece of the right, cheese. Right, right, right. I've seen those. Yeah, and they'll check it for texture. They'll taste it. They'll snap it. Like, they'll break it in half to see how, you know, the, a milder cheese will be um, a little bit more bendy than a sharp cheddar. So then they basically say... Okay, if we age this cheese for another year, it'll be a delicious XYZ cheese. Or, okay, if we take this block out right now and, you know, put it into the cut and wrap facility, it'll be, you know, a wonderful sharp cheddar. Uh, so they have a really, really cool job. <laughs> and Ooh, they are one job. of the, yeah. yeah, they're one of the most important parts of the cheese making process because they, they basically grade the cheese and, uh, they, have the all the power of deciding you know if it's up to cabot par or not 
Well, and that's a pretty high standard, the Cabot brand. Um, yes. Now, uh, you were saying when we were talking before about how I, I told you that I, when I was young, little, I mean, like, oh, even I, the photograph I got of me at age five, no, it was six, or maybe it was seven. But anyhow, I was on the farm. And and I said, but I imagine everything is just so different now because at that time it took so much effort and time that um, uh, my my great uncle had no life at all, really. I mean, he just he had to milk the cows twice a day, and then he did do all the other stuff in between. So, yeah, yeah. And you said everything has changed in in the dairy farming to the point where even things now are different from when you were a child. Yeah. What kind of changes are happening? So I think a lot of it is due to technology. Um, We've been able to really implement a lot of cool technology on the farm. So, again, we've been extremely lucky to have three generations in ownership. So we have a wonderful sounding board for innovative ideas and implementing new projects um, as well as building we have many hands so many hands make light work yeah (laughs) and uh we also have wonderful employees on our farm so a lot of the um employees have been with us for 15 plus years and you know we really trust them if we do have to you know leave the farm or take a vacation we we can trust that they are holding everybody to a standard that they would be doing exactly if we were there or not so yeah, we've that, been very, very blessed to have a wonderful That would you know, make workforce. a difference, yeah. I mean, that's a yeah, big difference. Yeah, and, it, and another thing that we've um, added as well as many other farms is um, what we call an RFID tag. So that is basically an ear tag that hooks up to our computer system. Oh, dear. And that allows us to pull up um, any cow on the farm and read all the history who her mom was, who her dad was, uh, how many pounds of milk she's producing, wow. <laughs> you know, what group she's in, um, if she has been, you know, sick lately, if we've given her any medicine, if she, you know, has had her hoofs trimmed recently, you know. And so that computer system allows us to be much better managers yeah, no. uh, just because, you know, you, you can't know every individual cow. You know, we do. Don't get me wrong. You know, our herdsmen can look at a cow's back and say, oh, I think that's, you know, 642. Really? <laughs> sure enough, I'll look at her name tag, and I'm like, yep, that is. <laughs> so, we, you know, again, we, we have wonderful employees, but the technology and those computer systems are above and beyond the management style that what it used to be. You know, oh, it's 15 incredible. years ago, we, we didn't have that on our farm. And, you know, we were still doing everything kind of by hand. And, you know, you lose the paper, you lose the notebook. So, again, it's a much better system, uh, technology. I love it. Um, and it's really funny to kind of teach my dad how to use technology. <laughs> <laughs> so, granted, he's... He's not old. I want to, that to go on the record. He's not old. He's very, <laughs> you know, <laughs> good for his times. But uh, he, a lot of the management is now in front of a computer instead of, um, 
you know, in the cows. In the so field. he's, yeah, so he's really enjoyed that. Both my brother and I are back, and um, we can do a lot of the more uh, strenuous, hands-on work and, you know, getting in and out of the v- the tractors isn't as easy as it once used to be, um, especially for my grandfather. So we've been extremely fortunate to have, you know, safe, reliable um, tractors on the farm, and, you know, the technology really helps us be better managers, especially from a financial standpoint. So a lot of our uh, financials are right on a computer, and, you know, we can send it out to all three of our personal computers. So that way, you know, wherever we are, we can kind of hop in and um, see everything going on at the farm as well as just, you know, going on our phone and going into the computer. So, again, technology is extremely important and very innovative in uh, farming today now the structure that you adopted back in 1919 the the, uh, the cooperative, cooperative that 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 in itself must have been a very important to the to the if you like it to the survival of your business probably for sure yeah it's um our board is all made up of cabot dairy farmers and they're voted in in our district so the board representative um, of my family is actually two miles up the road. So it's, it's a lot easier to communicate, you know, to the farmers, um, just because there are 800 farms in the co-op. So there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes and a lot of important information to get out there. And, you know, you have a personal relationship with your milk inspector as well as your board member, um, your board representative, so that's, again, I mean, I don't know how, I, I mean, I cannot imagine 100 years ago knowing that that would be so important, you know, 100 years later. I cannot imagine how wonderful the founders and how forward-thinking they were because the model has lasted for 100 years. And granted, we've always had to make a little changes here and there, just like any other business, but the main point of a cooperative is still very true to what it is today as it was 100 years ago. Now, if, if well, the, whole, the whole concept of, of, be, yeah. of being able to have a brand. Yeah, I mean, now, can anybody in this co-op use that brand of Gabbett? So the, co-op, the, so the dairy farmers own the Agrimark cooperative okay that's what uh, so the, and then the cooperative of agrimark owns the cabot brand so we have um two different cheese brands so we have cabot cheese as well as macadam cheese so macadam was part of the allied co-op which my family was a part of um before we uh merged with cabot back in 2006 so they still produce the macadam brand but it's just not as well known as the Cabot brand, but it is great selling cheese up by me just because it's been a brand locally for, I think the the McAdam brand started in 1876. Oh, Jesus. Uh, or right. around there. I can get you the exact date, but I believe it was um, in the 1870s. So it's been a very strong brand in, in New York and merging with the Cabot brand, which is a very strong Vermont brand. I mean, we were, you know, a, kind of a 
a dual force um, for many years, and we've just kind of gone above and beyond anything that we could imagine, and I cannot wait to see what the next 100 years are, because I'm still going to be alive in 100 years, of course. (laughs) In in the current 100 years, you're always thinking, these Cabot people there, they're always thinking, I, I never imagined how lazy consumers can be, but you obviously tuned into that because several of the cheeses you sent us are, 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 are already cut up. <laughs> For cracker size. Yeah, they're, yeah. Yeah, they're, well, not, they're, they're not those horrible Swiss cheese slices you get from the deli. Yeah, these are shaped like little they're squares like yeah. crackers. Yeah, the, the cracker cut collection, um, I'm not sure who came up with that, but that has... Uh, been very successful to say the least so we've been extremely happy with how that has taken off and it's kind of the convenience so consumers are all about convenience and that's where we've been very fortunate for our marketing team and our sales team and everyone behind the scenes to really be again so forward thinking so um we we try to do everything that is sustainable for the next you know ten years, the next twenty five years, the next fifty years, and it goes all the way down to the farms. So the farms are implementing this technology that is going to make them you know better manager, better employers, um, better you know animal health, and you know anything that we can do to sustain ourselves for the next ten years, the next twenty five years, the next hundred years. And that goes all the way up to our cut and wrap facility saying, okay, if we invest X amount of dollars into, you know, this, this cutting brand that makes the cracker cuts, this cutting machine that makes the cracker cuts, you know, can this make a go at it? And it has. And, you know, we've, we've kind of been back to the drawing board of, okay, how are we going to do this? You know, what's the next new thing? Or... You know, how can we expand on these cracker cuts or how can we, you know, expand this to all types of cheese instead of just the, you know, I think we have six or eight types of cheese that we do do in the cracker cuts. So it's always, again, those those forward thinking models of, you know, if you're thinking about today, you're already behind. You got to think the next five years, the next 10 years, the next 25 years. Allison, it's been so much fun talking to you. I'm going to go look for that horseradish. <laughs> she's, going to, she's going to sneak a taste of horseradish in before dinner. I missed that one. I'm going to have to go try that yeah. one. It should, be, it should be a purple package. Purple, okay. Well, you are just a delight to talk to, and, and you know so much about it, Allison. And you're so happy with what you do, and that's very impressive. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I enjoy what I do, and... I, you know, you wouldn't be in the agricultural sector if you didn't love what you do. I know, I know. It's not a job that anybody can do, and um, I've been very fortunate to have such a legacy and such a support system behind me. But I'm really excited to see where, you know, my brother and I and the seventh generation of our farm can, you know, take our business and um, move and groove with it. So (laughs) diversify a little bit here and there, and come up with some new project ideas and see what we have to offer. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll be watching with interest, Allison. In the meantime, have a, have a great day. Have some great cheese making. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Allison. Bye. Okay. 
Okay, after the break, we'll be crossing the country all the way from Vermont to Alaska, and you'll have to guess what product it is that we're going to feature from Alaska. So don't go away, we'll be right back with the answer. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. So did you guess if we crossed the country from Vermont uh, all the way over the other side... What do you think the product would be? Well, I know. So yeah, you know, you know, I understand. <laughs> well, what we're going to do is oh, you're, we're well, going to go pay, from... paying attention. It, we, it, we're going to go from um, farmers and cheesemakers uh, to fishermen and women. So we're going to be talking to Marsh Skeel, um, one of the fishermen in the... the and, and a very unusual concept that they have. Yes. To, uh, to, support, to support a sustainable sish, fishery. In, in Alaska. So it's, it's a very interesting story and uh, you won't want to miss it. So hang in here. Well, you know, listeners, you probably all know about uh, community um, uh, CAS programs or is it CSA? I was CSA. Going to CSA. CSA programs. But here we have something that I had never heard of before, which is CSF which is community-supported fishery. And we're going to be talking to one of the fishermen, second generation, isn't it, Marsh Skeel. You are second generation, and you are with the Sitka Salmon Wild Alaskan Seafood, C-A-C-S-F, right? Yep, C-S-F. Okay. Um you're in Alaska right now. Were you born in Alaska because your father was a fisherman too? Yeah, yeah. I was born here, right here in Sitka, Alaska. Because okay, Sitka is the name of the place. Yes, yeah, it is. It's a, it's a pretty unique port. It's right. You don't really understand the, how special it is, you know, just growing up. And you think, oh, you're fishing here. This is how most fishing is in, around the around the country or world. But... What's unique about Sitka is its proximity to the fishing grounds. So we're like right on some really amazing fishing grounds. It's right on the outer coast, and also the how the fisheries are managed and and uh, here are it's a very it's a small boat fishery. Um, so there are only small boat fisheries here, so there's no large industrial kind of catcher processor type boats fishing mm-hmm. out of Sitka. It's all kind of it's all small boats. Now, um, how, so how, really did they, how did unique, they? How did they? How did they? Mark, how did that come Marsh. to be? Uh, it, it, it came to be um, the Magnuson-Stevens Act in the early 70s uh, uh, was formed because they needed to, um, there was Russian and Japanese catcher processors that were fishing three miles off of the shoreline year-round and catching all the fish, and uh, it was really it was really hard on the local fishermen, so... 
Uh, part of the Magnuson-Stevens Act was to uh, to boot those guys out to outside of 200 miles, so to kick them out of our fishing grounds. And then it was uh, it was people that cared that fought really hard um, to to support small boat fisheries. So um, we had a we had a trawling ban. So trawling is the type of fishery that you drag a large right, right, right. You know, and, and how, how most how most of the fish in the world are caught. You know, indiscriminately catching whole schools of fish um, and getting lots of bycatch. So actually some a local woman, Linda Benkin, helped uh, kind of spearhead the effort to kick crawlers out. And then from there it was just uh, fishermen and people in policy that really cared about uh, keeping a small boat fleet here. And so their work really uh, helped, helped create really amazing fisheries in this region of Alaska. Now, you said that um, you were one of the founders, and you uh, you sort of explained what motivated this operation. Could you do that um, for our listeners? Yeah, yeah. So we, um, you know, I was uh, I was living here in Sitka, and uh, I had just bought a boat around the time I met this guy, Nick Mink, my business partner, and... Uh, and uh, we both loved really good food and became friends quickly. And then he uh, he got he was working on his PhD and got his first teaching job in Illinois. So I sent some fish down to do a buying club in the Midwest, and some people got a little bit of my fish, and everyone was super excited about it. Like, whoa, we can get you know fish directly from a fisherman in Illinois. This is this is great. Yeah, and, I lived uh, in the Midwest, and I'll tell you, and I also lived in Kansas City, and the only thing you got was catfish. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the no, don't have the greatest choices. Um, you know, fish is just fish is a very perishable ingredient. Um, so, really, it's uh, yeah, you don't you're not going to get great stuff in the Midwest unless you have uh, unless you get it frozen and unless it's frozen really nicely. But we uh, so I sent some fish down. Everyone was excited about it and they wanted more. And then the following year, uh, we started the company and he. Uh, and I had the chance to go down and meet some of the people that got the fish. And to me, that was like a, a, a big aha moment of like meeting, actually connecting with the people getting my fish. So all the care I put into it, um, into, you know, all the bleeding and icing and handling to have people on the other end that were super excited to get it really, you know, made me realize that I wanted to be part of this in a bigger way. Now, so, it's, it's interesting. So, yeah. yeah. I mentioned to you before we came on the air that, that we had we visited a, a a farming a farming salmon farming fisherman in in Ireland last October, and one of the dramatic things that he told us is that he filleted every single fish that he sold he filleted them himself, and you said I'm not surprised and I do the same thing. Can, can, you, can, uh, you, can I don't I don't fillet every fish, but I think uh, you know. Every part of the process, the fish are so delicate that every part of the process really matters. So, you know, from the, you know, I used to catch a lot of the fish and now I don't catch as many and now I'm more, I still catch some, but I, I focus on the, on the processing side and organizing our fishermen, making sure they're delivering good fish. And then, you know, in the processing side, when you're filleting and freezing fish, every part of that matters. So, um, you know, I guess it's, it's a, it's important to understand the people getting our fish um, want a really beautiful piece of fish. They really want to be excited when they open up that box and think, oh, I can't wait to throw this on the grill. So You're so really emotionally charged by this, aren't you? 
Well, it's, uh, you know, it's, I, I better be. It's a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> a lot of work. It takes a lot of my, well, you know, all my time. So I feel, uh, yeah, I feel, I'm, I feel passionate. I'm, you know, I'm passionate about, about really good food is my main, I feel like, uh, calling in life. And so to be able to produce amazing food that people are excited about really is, it feels like it fits, it fits, uh, who I am. Now take us, take us through the process from start, from start to finish. From where you put your boat out on the water, right, and you and you and you go away. You think there are some fish. Yeah, you and charge that, off early in the you charge off early in the morning. So usually you you anchor in little uh, little harbors, um, and then you uh, head out anywhere from you know twenty minutes to an hour to to these fishing grounds, um, and you put your lines down and you're basic for salmon fishing. You're hooking line fishing, so you're setting a bunch. You're you're setting a bunch of lines and lures down in the water and kind of driving slowly. And the fish are really hungry, or hungrier in the mornings. Like if anybody's a sport fisherman, it's the morning bite. When, uh, oh, they that's why you know, fishermen go early. I never even realized yep. that. <laughs> yep, yep. And so the fishing is the best in the morning. So you, every morning you get up and you're like kind of curse yourself a little bit that you chose this lifestyle that makes you get up at 3 in the morning. But you get your coffee and you get your get your boat going and you head out there. Um, and then pretty much you're, you're, you're watching your lines all the time to see if you have fish on and you're, you're reeling those lines in and pointing them in by hand, the last part of the leader and you're, you're, um, you're bleeding the fish right away. You're pulling them in by hand, bleeding them and then, uh, and gutting them. So removing the gills and guts, which, uh, which spoil the most quickly. And then you're, you're in for my boat. I'm putting them right into, uh, a slush ice mixture. So they're getting down, uh, below 32 really quickly. So that really matters. Um, the, the quicker you can chill them, the better. And then we go out for two or three days of just, you know, driving around in the ocean, run through your lines, clean, you know, clean all your fish, ice them, keep doing that over and over again. And if you're fishing by yourself, then you, you really don't get any breaks and you just clean fish, run gear, clean fish, run gear. Um, you know, uh, and hopefully you're in the right spot and you have a lot of fish. If not, you're, you're sending messages to your buddies to know where, where you should be headed. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and then, you know, you go till 7 or 8 in the evening and uh, charge into the anchorage, scrub your boat down, and, and go to sleep uh, Go to sleep and do it again. And then we come into town, and uh, we offload the fish to uh, some insulated fish chokes um, on ice. We bring them to the plant, and then we, we start filleting and freezing them immediately. And I think the, the process of the... Of the, I think it's the, what's unique to Sitka salmon chairs in our freezing process is we're really looking at the engineering of the freezer and the thermodynamics and how to really freeze fish as fast as possible. Because um, that really makes a huge difference in uh, the kind of textural integrity, the quality of the fish. If you freeze the fish slowly, ice crystals form and it bursts cells. So, you get kind of a chewy, kind of a wet fish, so you wouldn't wouldn't sear up nicely in a pan. So we, you know, we really want to produce fish that is hard to even tell that has been frozen. That's our goal, and you can do that by really freezing it um, perfectly at fifty below with, with lots of airflow. Now you've got, you you've gotten it through from from the time you pulled the salmon over the side of the boat. It's going to be like 40, 48 hours, and it's in this frozen state. And, and, ready, yep, so, and yep. ready for you to so, be able to ship it. Uh, so then from there, we, uh, we freeze it and then we, we, we put it into a, a shipping, con- a freezer shipping container 
and it goes to Seattle, and then it gets barged to our main facility in Illinois. It gets trucked uh, in a freezer truck there. We used to fly fish, but um, it's more ex- expensive, takes more carbon, and uh, there's risk of the fish warming up because what if a flight gets delayed in Seattle in the summertime and it's, you know, 80 degrees? So um, so we the, the keeping it frozen the whole way in a freezer container is a much better, much safer, uh, more efficient way of, of transporting frozen fish. Well, then it gets to, the, it gets, to, it gets to Illinois, and then there we uh, break it down into five-pound boxes of each, you know, each for our shares, and then that goes all over the country. Now, you mentioned the share, and we, we didn't start with that, but uh, start us there with how people order this. So you order, a, you order, you choose your share. We've got various different shares available throughout the season. And then each month you get a, a different, in your, in your box, you get a different kind of mix of, of fish from that uh, we're catching seasonally. So, you know, in the early season shares, you have yellow eye rockfish and uh, halibut and black cod. And then, uh, you know, as the season goes into summer, we have a bunch of, we have four species of salmon, Nikita, King, Coho, Sockeye. And in the fall, we do Dungeness crab and spot prawns. Ooh, so, I want some of that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had some spot prawns and Dungeness. Uh, I made a booyah base last night. It was delicious. Oh, that sounds um, fabulous. Yeah, the, the, the spot prawns that really have a, they're more like a langoustine or yeah. lobster. They really, they really have a really rich flavor. They're, they're firm and meaty, and then the, the shells have an incredible flavor, so they really make an amazing stock. Well, now um, so, you, you're a cook then yeah. as well as a fisherman. <laughs> uh, yeah, I do like to cook. I do like to cook. Um, but I like, I just make simple stuff when I try to find the best ingredients, so I think this, this fits in there. Um, but we, uh, but yeah, so each, each, each month you get a different box of fish, and with that you get a, a newsletter kind of explaining, you know, how the fishery is managed, who the fishermen are that catch it. Uh, we do custom recipes, so kind of we try to break down some of the cooking techniques to kind of demystify it and make it more, uh, you know, familiarize people more with, uh, with how to cook our fish. Now, are you, people can get, buy a share on your website? Yep, just go to sickasalmonshares.com. SitkaSalmonShares.com. Yep. yep. Okay. And, and, and that's uh, how they, And you can, you don't do anything except whole a whole season, a whole year supply. No, we do. Uh, I think we do four months minimum. But um, just for our for our plants and and, uh, and fishermen, it's just easier to forecast ahead if we know ahead. So uh-huh. if. Uh, you know, it's harder. It's harder for the model. It's a kind of like community sport agriculture. It's hard for the for us just to be like get a random amount of orders all of a sudden and try to try to catch these fish and process them all all in a short time. It doesn't really work. I mean, you're not. You know, you're. you're the supply chain is sending little boats out in the ocean on the open ocean and catching fish by hook and line. So it, sometimes it takes a while to fill those orders um, for our fishermen, depending how good they're doing. So. So with the multi-month share, then we can forecast ahead and really bring on more fishermen and really and set up production so we can reach those reach those get those fish. Um, and also, I mean, if if it is it is four months, that seems long if you've never had our fish before. But if any but if there's any kind of complaint or anything, you cancel any time. If you ever had any issue with any quality of the fish or didn't like it or it was too much fish, 
Like you can cancel any time. So, um, you know, we try to be really good about that. Um, and very few people really do, which is kind of amazing. Now, we've talked about uh, supply. We've talked about uh, customers' uh, satisfaction. We've talked about quality and quality control. There is also the other side of this is uh, sustainability in terms of the, yes, uh, you can control overfishing, can you? So how the fisheries are managed in southeast Alaska is, uh, is for one, the type, the ways we're catching fish matter. So instead of a trawl, instead of a big net scooping up, indiscriminately scooping up large schools of fish, we're small boats, uh, hook and line, um, you know, fisheries with very low bycatch. Um, that are tightly managed. So some of the fisheries we have observers on there, um, like for salmon fisheries, for example, all the major salmon rivers have counters on them to count the number of salmon returning. And if those salmon aren't enough to support the future year's runs, they'll completely shut down commercial fishing. Right, right, so, right. So it's very tightly regulated. Um, you know, there's scientists studying all the fish stocks here, and then the way we catch them is, is much more low impact, so we're not adversely affecting the environment. And, you know, uh, some of the fisheries, we're only catching like 2% of the total fish in, in this region. So um, I think that the, the way that South Alaska manages fisheries, and especially Southeast Alaska, is great um, because, because of how the fisheries are managed. And there's also community-based fishermen is an interesting word. But fishermen that live and fish out of here and invest in boats and permits, we really don't want to see our fisheries collapse. So we're okay taking cuts if it's in the name of conservation. So I think that's different than if you have like a, a large catcher processor with a with you know 200 workers that are below the decks, you know that don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. Then their incentive is corporate incentive to catch more fish and make more money. Where I think you know it's it's very different here. It's the people love this lifestyle, they love catching fish, and they want to be able to support their families doing this, um, not just one year, but forever. So I think it really changes the kind of the, the how you how you how you feel about the area. You, you want to protect forests, so salmon habitat is is protected, and you want uh, you don't want a lot large scale mining in in the mouths of rivers because that could affect your salmon as well. So. So really, it's kind of a, it's a different outlook, I think, when you when you live and fish in a place like this. Oh, sure. Yeah, Nat, let's let's come back to the the other end of the of the spectrum, if you will. We've talked a little bit now about how how you get the fish and how it gets to me or whoever else has a CSF share. From that point, how long is the fish going to keep? I mean, it's it's been it's been. That's a, that's a great question. I think some of our and we're we're, we're working on this. Um, but some of our members hold on to their fish for a, a long time, and then say, "Oh, it's fine." But but it depends on the, how cold your freezer is. But at 20 below, you can keep fish to up to a year um, without any degradation. But how many people have 20 below, you know, freezers right. at their house? Yeah, there may be zero yeah, we, or negative. We run negative. we run ours at minus two, so running yeah. at, running at minus so two. Really, so really, you have you have months. So that's why, you know, I think some of these. Similar models try to sell fish in in large lots, uh, you know, just just to make it easier on the fishermen and the uh, and to defer some of the shipping costs to ship it all at once to somebody. But then someone has to store all this fish and try to eat through it. 
and really you have only have two or three months, I think, if you have a negative two freezer on until the fish starts to degrade. That well, we ate it right like, away. Yeah, we got we, yeah, got, we got four different we got good. four different kinds, and we we had black. I think we had black bass on Monday. We had cod on Tuesday. We had Sam coho the, and the, the, the salmon with a K one day, and yeah. then the coho another yeah. day. Oh, great! Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think. What we, we, we do tell our members, and, we, and we, um, we're working on more explaining, explaining that kind of, uh, that degradation, because we didn't, we didn't actually quite understand it, um, you know, in our first years of like the, how holding, how holding temperature affects the quality. And so we don't want to do all this work and then, uh, have someone just leave it in the freezer for a year and have it not be as good. It won't, it won't kill you, it won't, it won't like, Poison you but it won't taste it won't good. Taste. Yeah, it won't taste as good, and that's, yeah. <laughs> that's that's the whole thing. We're trying to make good fish, so yeah. You, you know, um, it's good that you you're doing this on um, on on the web. Um, I, I found a wonderful source of um, canned tuna in uh, where was it? Uh, not Oregon. I forget somewhere out there, Utah. Uh, something really unusual, and um, he went off. And and he he did everything by himself. He even um, he canned the tuna in its own juices on the boat. Oh, oh! The problem is oh, right. that I could never get him because he was always out on the boat to, to order, and he didn't do computers. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean that's that that is a big problem. I mean to be a successful fisherman, and why I don't fish that much anymore. It really takes total focus. I mean, you have to make, maintain all these systems in your boat and your battle and the tides and the weather. And it's really, a, it's a really a challenging, it's rewarding, but it's a challenging profession that takes all of your energy. So. And you have the issue of climate change that you're dealing with as well. Huh? Oh, totally. And I mean, and that's just starting to kind of, uh, you're starting to see different things happen that are not normal. So, you know, it's really a. a you mean you can see it already? You can, you can, and I'm just saying how it affects all fisheries here in Sitka. It's, uh, you know, it's, things are changing and it's like, it's still to be determined how it affects everything. So it's like, it's, things are starting to change and it's happening quickly. But, um, right now, um, right now that all, all of our fisheries are doing pretty well, but you know, you see some alarming things happening in the ocean that doesn't bode well. So it's really to be determined. Nobody really has a, a total clear picture of what how that how climate change will affect um, you know the ocean completely. So, all we can do is manage our fisheries and hope and hope for the best. Right. Well, your 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 plan and your execution uh, to be applauded. Oh yes, and uh, abs- we're really abs- absolutely thrilled that we found you too. I mean, it's a, then, uh, I love getting the word out about the availability of, of your program and your. Um, and you, you're so enthused. I'm excited about the program because you're excited about it too. Oh, great! That's, <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I mean, it really. When you think of it from like, a, well, okay, you go to the grocery store and get salmon. Where does that salmon come from? It's a multinational salmon farm that has very little regulation. That is like, you know, it's got antibiotics and dyes, and you know, when you buy wild Alaskan salmon, you're buying directly from a small. You know, you're getting it from a small-scale owner-operator. You're supporting, you know, uh, uh, a really sustainable fish way of life and fishing. 
Um, so we just try to we just try to make that easier and, and do the best job we can. Well, again, Marsh Steele, thank you for talking to us. Again, listeners, the the website is Sitka Salmon Shares plural. That's S I T K A Salmon Shares dot com, and uh, I it's wonderful fish, and your program is wonderful, Marsh. Hey, thanks. It's my pleasure to be on here with you guys. I'm, I'm really excited that you like the fish. Oh, we did. Yeah. Now, did you get named Marsh because of the water? <laughs> uh, my dad was a duck hunter. Oh. My dad was a duck hunter, so I think... Uh, that's how it came yeah, about. I think that had something to do with it. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, I hope our paths cross again. Feel free to update us with any information that you might have or that we should know. Yeah, will do, guys. Thanks thanks for having me on. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Well, you know, I'm I'm not so sure about the lineage of beef jerky, but it's certainly an American concept to have a, a whole network of beef jerky outlets. Although we're going to be talking to uh, one of the franchisees, I guess it's called uh, Anthony Lingus, who happens to be right here now, neck of the woods. Exactly, and uh, he will tell you that they make more than beef jerky. But anyhow, um, let's listen. Okay, <laughs> you sure you're going to let go now? So, so, it's all right. Well, you're making right. me, you're it's waving right. me down. I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> all, it's all right to put the beef jerky man up, right? Yeah, yeah we're we're going to be entering a, a new world, at least a new world for us at On the Menu Radio. Um, it's the we're going to talk to Anthony Lingus, who with his wife. Karen own a franchise for beef jerky outlets at Grove City and other places, right? Am I correct on that, Anthony? Yes, ma'am. Grove City, Pennsylvania at the Grove City Premium Outlets, as well as uh, Washington, Pennsylvania at the Tanger Outlets. Right. And explain to me, when I went on your website, I mean, you don't just sell beef jerky, Oh, no. No, in fact, it's, you know, a funny story. I had a vegetarian come in one day and said, ah, oh, this store's not for me. You know, but frankly, we sell, uh, you know, dried fruits, dried cheeses, popcorns, peanuts. Uh, we've got some hot sauces and some, some spices and rubs and things like that. Uh, you know, so there's, there's a lot more. We pet treats. We have candy cordials. You know, there's a lot of fun things at the store. In fact, I have something called Gator Toes, which, of course, anybody who's vegan or vegetarian would probably shy away from, or anybody might shy away from. Uh, but these gator toes are, it's kind of funny. They're, all they are is a deep fried garlic clove. Oh, really? And I gotta tell you, they're wonderful. They, they're almost like the, the, uh, consistency of a Cheeto when you eat them. Yeah. And, uh, they're really good. Well, how would you characterize this concept? Because it was a new one to me. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it's interesting. I mean, from, from my perspective, uh, you know, I would go into the convenience store and, and I love jerky. I always said, I've always loved jerky. 
Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I'd spend, you know, a, a significant amount of money on a bag of jerky and then take it back to my car and uh, eat it and not be pleased. <laughs> and, you know, there were times even when I've just thrown it away because I didn't like it. The concept here really is a try before you buy. And we have this, uh, you know, we have barrels set up around the store where we will let you sample, you know, pretty much all the jerkies on the shelf. And there are a lot of them, huh? There are, yeah. We, we like to say we have over 100 varieties. Uh, when it all comes down to it, from from either a more traditional jerky chew, a, a dehydrated type product, you know, with that chewiness that you get off of a, a traditional jerky, but then on top of that, there's a smoke product as well, which retains a moisture content, uh, higher moisture content to it, and and it really has a really nice chew to it, a nice consistency, you know, tender tenderness to it, I should say. And we interviewed somebody who had that kind of a jerky yep. a, a while ago. What's the the producer's name? Uh, that the, you interviewed, I'm not sure. No, but who produces your jerky? Oh, that produces our jerky. Well, it's it's Beef Jerky Outlet. Uh, it, you know, the franchise actually has a couple producers that do that, and um, it, it's it, you know we are we are a Beef Jerky Outlet branded product. We have a couple other uh, producers that uh, we pull jerky in from as well. Uh, there's a red truck out of the uh, Maryland area, and then uh, Strive, which has a Biltong product, which is a South African jerky. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, the, the jerky uh, is branded Beef Jerky Outlet in our stores for the most part, the vast majority of it, I should say. And, and the headquarters is somewhere in Tennessee? Yeah, Kodak, Tennessee, in the Smoky Mountains is the headquarters. Yes, oh, sir. that's why it's called Kodak. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So um, how did this come about? I mean, I don't even know the time frame in this. How long oh, sure. have you been involved in it? How long have they been um, putting they're exclusively in these outlet malls? Yep. Well, I can tell you that the, the franchise as a whole was founded in uh, 2010, so it's been around for a little while. There oh, are okay. six founder-owned stores, uh, typically in, uh, you know, in that Smoky Mountains area, in the Gettenberg and uh, Kodak area and Sevierville. And then there are, uh, there's another owner store, a uh, couple of them, I think, up in uh, the Michigan area. But uh, myself personally, how how we my family got involved. Of course, you know I have, I have two young children, uh, kind of ten and thirteen now, two boys, uh, and I was traveling quite a bit for my prior job in in sales engineering. I was a sales engineering executive for a large company, and that travel just got got to be a bit much, frankly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I wanted to be home with my kids, so I was looking for something else to do. And uh, I had told my brother at one point that I wanted to take him on a fishing trip. We went down to the best bass lake in the country down in uh, uh, Texas. And it, it ended up the best bass lake in the country is Lake Fork, Texas, where the top 45 of the top 50 bass ever caught were caught in that lake. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, <clears throat> so I, I took my brother down there. We had a, a great time. Uh, but on the way to the lake, which is you know a couple hours, I think, from Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, uh, we saw this place called Beef Jerky Island. I said, oh, my goodness. And uh, we turned around, uh, did a U-turn, and I'll tell you, we bought, I know it was over $100 worth of jerky that day to take on the boats and go fishing with us. And, and i got to tell you, every last bit of it was gone uh, by the time we came home. <laughs> so as we were driving back to the airport uh, from the lake from that long weekend, we saw another one. <clears throat> and uh, we stopped again, filled our suitcases, and on the way home on the plane, my brother said to me, Boy, you've been looking to do something. This would go really well back home. And I said, you know, I think it would. I'm going to look into it. So uh, not not long after that, of course, when I come home and tell my wife, she looks at me like I have a third eye. You know, are you crazy <laughs> getting into the jerky business? Uh, but uh, I was on a scouting trip out to Gettysburg, and uh, there's one in the outlet mall in Gettysburg, and a wonderful woman owns that. 
uh, Donna Shankweiler and, and her husband Tom. And I got to talking to her, and she was explaining to me, you know, the successes of the business from her perspective, and and kind of how the business itself, the franchise is family run, and they're they're just great people, and uh, and the product was obviously superior. I mean, I, I fell in love with it. Uh, There's quite a few. The cherry maple was fantastic. The honey jalapeno was fantastic. Yeah, you like the honey jalapeno. I like the prime rib. Yeah, well, the prime rib is really good too. It's got that great au jus flavor with uh, yeah. kind of a crust of the prime rib as an aftertaste. Love that too. Uh, it's our number one seller, frankly. Now you've got some exotic meats too, like elk and. Uh, we do, and one that's probably near and dear to your heart too, right? The kangaroo. <laughs> yeah, you get some roux too. Yeah, <laughs> we didn't get one of those, did we? No, uh, no. Sorry, I didn't send that. But uh, the funny part about it is we we were in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. The, the day that they legalized oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, uh, the shooting of kangaroos for meat. You weren't oh, allowed. In, in, Victoria, in Victoria. Now, it had been allowed in the rest of the country. But not in Victoria. Victoria was wow. laggard. And we, so, so we had some... Uh, roux. roux. We had some roux filet for, for our lunch at the Paul Bocuse restaurant in Melbourne, Australia. Yeah. I'll be darned. I'll be darned. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize, you know, they think the kangaroo is a cute little animal, but they're, they're kind of like the deer around here, right? Oh yeah, they, they they can be really invasive. It can be mm-hmm. it can be something of a pest. There's no question about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the the dietary side of this because you you emphasize that in the material that you sent. Sure. And this 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 is really s- suitable for what kinds of things? Well, it you know really comes down to a low carb diet. Right, so okay. when you hear the the buzzwords and the buzz diets that are kind of out there now, the paleo diets, the keto diets, the Atkins diets, those sorts of things, and even even other you know low carb diets, the even Weight Watchers, I think uh, you know has their point system and whatnot. We have some customers coming in and asking how many points oh, a yeah, diet of right. turkey might be worth. <laughs> um, I'm you know I personally I'm I'm uh, a diabetic uh, just r- recently, and uh, oh, no. of course low carb for me. Uh, becomes very important as well. So, you know, jerky's a high-protein product. Of course, there's some salt in it. Uh, you know, that's one of the things you always have to watch for. We have, we like to think we have got the uh, lower salt product on the market, uh, if you will, but it's a, uh, it's a good high-protein product. You eat it, and, you, you know, you generally feel full yeah. as you're chewing on it quite I a bit. I did notice about, I did check the sodium, though, because that's one of the things I always check. Yep. And, and it, I, yeah, I mean, it, it's not um, sulfury. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 for sure. I mean, it is a cured product, right? So, And it always seems like there's something that has to get you, right? I know, it's true. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you know, for me, I'm, uh, even to this day, people have asked me, we've been open for a year, and they asked me if I've gotten sick of it yet, and, and, I, and I haven't. I, Honest to goodness, uh, I just love the product. I always keep a couple bags in my bag as I'm traveling around, and, uh, if I'm working at the store, I'll have a bag for lunch, and it satisfies me. You know, <laughs> you're eating the profits. You got to stop this. <laughs> well, that's a good point too. Yeah, my wife often tells me that, <laughs> but but that's okay. That's okay. I mean, what about this experience? First of all, who comes into your shop? You know, uh, I got to tell. I I had really thought that we were targeting the hunting crowd. You know. The, the stereotypical, I, and I don't want to offend any women that hunt because I certainly know my wife loves to hunt as well, uh, but stereotypical hunters and, and that sort of thing that would come in, I thought we were targeting. In, in all honesty, uh, there is no, uh, really no, no target market for me, uh, it, it seems. Uh, you know, from kids all the way up to senior citizens, given that we've got that tender jerky. I had, I like to joke sometimes, my mother-in-law hated jerky. And, uh, you know, I said, Mom, you know, Mom, you really got to try this. You really got to try it. 
and she is addicted to it now. She loves our, uh, we have a Korean barbecue, which is kind of a bulgogi seasoning, uh, yeah. uh, which uh, it's, a, it's a pork, and it's extremely tender and just wonderful. And then we had just had this dill pickle come out, and she is in yeah. love with that dill pickle flavor jerky, even I'm, though it's I'm a dehydrated. dill pickle first. No, that, that, that's, that's my favorite. That, yeah. was, the, that yeah. was the second one I opened. The first was the prime, and, and the second the dill in pickle. In fact, not, not only that, we put dill pickle beside of it. <laughs> yep, yep. Well, and, and uh, I don't know, I just um, well, lost, my, lost my train of, of all, thought. I first of all, your customer is somebody who's, who actually opted to go to a, you know, um, an, an outlet mall, right? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. But we even get some walk-ins, believe it or not. It's, you know, they're often, the outlet malls are often travel destinations. Yeah, uh, you know, you my see mother them. swore by them, I know. Yep, yep, and then the back to school and the, you know, of course, Easter coming up and people working on Easter gifts, Christmas gifts. Uh, Christmas is a wonderful time of year for us. We've got some gift boxes that we have, uh, and they're wonderful products, too, for, you know, even I think when I was in the corporate world uh, providing gifts for customers, We've got some gift boxes that are fantastic for that. Uh, they're they're really classy looking gift boxes with you know again high high quality beef jerky and some other snacks that you can put in those gift boxes. They end up being really successful for us in the past year as well, and uh, and we sell a lot of them online too. You know we've got an online website, and each one of our stores, by the way, are are you know really essentially family owned. So uh, you know my wife and I own these two in in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, there's another one uh, that's going to be opening I think in in the coming week. Uh, they're in the Strip District in Pittsburgh. Really? Yeah, yeah. Right so across that's from not Fermani. even in an outlet mall. It's not in an outlet mall. That's right. So there are other locations. A lot of times we like to put them in travel travel destinations or you know truck stop type areas. Those because it is a good travel food uh, that people love to take when they're traveling. But uh, you know there are other loca- neighborhood locations across the country and some other locations. There's over a hundred locations across the country in the franchise. So um, they, I mean, everybody has the same inventory. Yeah, for the most part, I mean, we have some autonomy as owners to choose what, what goes and what doesn't go in our areas. Of course, different geographies have different likes and dislikes. So there are some things that I don't carry in my store that might be in the store in Tennessee or, you know, whatnot. Um, but, uh, you know, we have a, a pick list of things that we can choose as we order our inventory every week. And one nice thing about that, too, is, uh, you know, just to point out, I mean, this is all fresh. Uh, we have, when you buy the jerky in our stores, uh, it's typically going to be, it, it was probably packaged within the last, you know, two to four weeks or so. Um, and that's something that, you know, is, is I think our customers really pay attention to, really realize, uh, it, because you can just taste that freshness in the product. How about how about a website so that people can be aided in finding you? Oh, sure, yeah. We're, we're uh, beefjerkyoutlet.com is really simple. You can get to your local beef jerky outlet uh franchise uh, by simply doing that it'll come up with a little uh, location search there to, to find your closest one uh, of course mine personally uh, for my wife and I is beefjerkyoutlet.com slash Washington uh, just to, to make it relatively simple and uh, we always try to you know because we're locally family owned and it's our reputation involved we try to ship out you know faster than some of the, the big stores that are making fast shipping fa- uh, claims on the market I mean I've, I've had a lot of customers get our product the next day you know, as soon as they order, and that's really we really pride ourselves on that. Yeah, I mean, our samples came really fast. Yeah. Well, well, we, we wish you we wish you a lot of luck. Yeah, I mean, this is a whole there's, new concept. A, a, I was really fascinated to hear about this. There's a there's a local there's a local local family. They, be, they they became very wealthy in the real estate business, but they started out. They got the franchise for Western Pennsylvania 
for Wendy's hamburgers. Oh, wow. Old fashioned hamburgers. <laughs> that oh, was wow. a long time ago. That was a long time ago. They've yeah. they made it. they made just just a dollar or two. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I bet. <laughs> My kids love their nuggets. <laughs> so, yeah. so it, it can be done. We, we, we wish you well and be, be sure to call us and, and let us know when you make it really big. <laughs> well, I, I can't thank you enough for having us on this. I, I you know, this is a, excuse me, as successful as you guys have been on this uh, uh, podcast and show, uh, it just it meant a lot for you to reach out to us. Thank you so much. Well, okay. thank you for coming aboard. <laughs> oh, sure. Thanks, Anthony. Yeah, have a great day. Okay, sweetheart, that's that's a wrap. That's it, yeah, sure same, is. Same time, same place next week. We hope we'll uh, hear from you then. And in the meantime, what do we say? Bye-bye.